surgeons, unlike athletes, don't get to rehearse before game time. We've learned what we learned in medical school and residency, and we do a course here or there, but our practice is literally practicing on patients. What we found by using this technology is that with the surgeon using virtual reality to rehearse on that specific patient's anatomy, it led to a change in the surgical plan nearly 25% of the time, which is pretty remarkable that, you know, you think after a while we're surgeons, we know what we're doing, but sometimes it just leads to an entirely different approach. Instead of going through the eyebrow, I'll go behind the hairline. Other times, it's like we're going to shift it up and over this way. And what this allows is to get progressively more and more towards this concept of truly minimally invasive surgery because we're able to rehearse it until we get it right in the VR and then do it exactly the way that we plan to once we get to the time of surgery. Welcome to The Medical Matrix. I'm your host, Dr. Rosie Sender, and I'm here with my co-host today, Dr. Erica Fisk, who's now become my regular permanent (laughs) co-host. Our guest today is Dr. Robert Lewis, who is a board-certified neurosurgeon, and he's currently practicing at the Hogue Hospital in Newport Beach, California. He specializes in minimally invasive brain tumor surgery and minimally invasive skull-based tumor surgery, complex spine, pituitary surgery, and more. And Dr. Lewis also utilizes virtual reality to help patients in his practice, and that will be the focus of our discussion today. So before we launch into the podcast episode, I do want to distinguish between a virtual reality and augmented reality, as they will come up in the conversation. Virtual reality is a fully immersive experience where a user leaves the real-world environment behind to enter a fully digital environment via virtual reality headsets. Our brains believe they are moving among virtual objects on a screen. Augmented reality is the real-time use of information in the form of text, graphics, audio, and other virtual enhancements integrated with uh, real-world objects. Now, I was really interested in talking with Dr. Lewis about his use of virtual reality in his practice, as it also builds upon an episode that we had done in the past with Dr. Justin Brad, who came on to discuss his company, Oso VR, uh, and they use VR for surgical training. It was a really fascinating discussion on how we as surgeons could utilize this technology to augment our surgical education. And Dr. Lewis has taken it a little step further and actually uses it in his practice. So with that, welcome, Dr. Lewis. How are you? Thank you so much for having me, Rosie and Erica. I'm happy to be here. I'm glad you're here. Is there anything that you would like to add uh, that uh, I might have missed uh, in when I was giving your intro? No, you know, I mean, you give a nice introduction and uh, I'm excited about uh, getting into this topic. Okay, great. So I'll start with the first question then. What inspired you to use VR in your practice? Were you a gamer? No, I actually was not a gamer at all. Clearly, because you're not an orthopod. <laughs> <laughs> um, although I have gotten into games now that VR is a thing. But <laughs> no, uh, I, um, you know, my background before becoming a neurosurgeon was in teaching neuroanatomy. And when I came into practice, I was kind of underwhelmed by our ability as surgeons to prepare for surgery. I mean, we had no ability to rehearse. 
I don't know if you know the orthopedic surgeon Chris Ahmad. He's you know he's for the New York Yankees. He wrote this book called Skill, where he talks about the preparation and planning and training for surgeons as compared to elite athletes. And he lists off a lot of similarities between preparing for surgery and preparing for a big game, except the one major difference was that surgeons, unlike athletes, don't get to rehearse before game time. We learned what we learned in medical school and residency, and we do a course here or there, but our practice is literally practicing on patients. As compared to athletes, Michael Jordan still practiced five days a week, even long after he was, you know, six, five times world champion. Uh, so the lack of ability to practice and rehearse was kind of always shocking to me. And the fact that we were always as surgeons forced to look at things through the radiologist's point of view in these like two-dimensional, you know, looking from the feet up slices, which are black and white, which don't really give you a sense of what things are like in surgery. So it was about uh, three years into my practice where I was approached by a company called Surgical Theater, a rep that I had already known. And he showed me this technology that essentially is based on flight simulator technology from F-16s and that takes the patient's standard, you know, CTs and MRIs and is able to reconstruct them on a patient-specific level to create a patient-specific 360 model, which we can then rehearse, use to rehearse and plan for brain surgery. So that's how it, it, it all started. And what we found by using this technology is that with the surgeon using virtual reality to rehearse on that specific patient's anatomy, it led to a change in the surgical plan nearly 25% of the time, which is pretty remarkable that, you know, you think after a while we're surgeons, we know what we're doing, but sometimes it just leads to an entirely different approach. Instead of going through the eyebrow, I'll go behind the hairline. Other times it's like, we're going to shift it up and over this way. And what this allows is to get progressively more and more towards this concept of truly minimally invasive surgery, because we're able to rehearse it until we get it right in the VR and then do it exactly the way that we plan to once we get to the time of surgery. Just because I'm not very familiar with neuroanatomy and specific neurosurgery, minimally invasive to me, I'm used to the like, you do a craniotomy, you have to take part of the skull off. That's even like a thing now that people are doing is the MIS surgery in general. I mean, you can go through very small areas that are localized without doing the craniotomy. So That's exactly right. So technically, when anytime you open the skull, it's a craniotomy, but instead of taking off half the front of the skull, we're able to do it through the nose, the nostrils, or through an incision in the eyelid and go up through the roof of the orbit, or, you know, an, a, a two-inch incision behind the hairline or behind the ear. So the reason that we're able to do that in the modern era is, I guess, three. You know, number one, an improving level and understanding of microanatomy, so being able to really know where things are and where they're supposed to be. And Add on to that the navigation technologies, which allow us to be accurate, you know, within less than a millimeter of where exactly we are. So that before these technologies, I needed to take out a tumor in the frontal lobe. I had to remove most of the frontal bone to get there because I wouldn't be able to tell exactly where it would be until I opened the skull. Now, if I've got a virtual reality rehearsal, I know exactly that I can plan so I can take that, you know, instead of taking off the whole frontal bone, I can make my craniotomy only the size that I need it to be and make directly over the tumor. So what the VR rehearsal, the way that VR contributes to this is by allowing you to predict line of sight. And so you can't predict line of sight on two-dimensional imaging. It has to be on 3D imaging. And essentially, you can create your surgical corridor and make sure that when you get in there, when, you, when you're at the time of surgery, you're going to be able to do what you're hoping to do and you're not limited by your craniotomy. So the old school way of doing it where we have to ensure that we have adequate exposure was because they didn't have any way preoperatively to ensure adequate exposure. 
Now, if we rehearse using VR, we've already guaranteed this is the surgical view I'm going to have exactly. Uh, and therefore, yes, this is I can make a craniotomy smaller and smaller so that it's we use the Goldilocks principle, not too big, not too small, just right. So I just wanted to ask then, how often are you using virtual reality to do surgical planning for your cases? Is it for every patient or is it for just complex patients? So, you know, for brain surgery, it's for every case. The simplest explanation is if it were my brain or my daughter's brain, I would want my surgeon rehearsing before going in to do the operation. Because every patient's different. Yes, we know where the carotid artery is, but in this patient, maybe it's a few millimeters to the left, or maybe it's a few millimeters up, or maybe they have a weird twist to the middle cerebral artery. And so I don't want to be going into surgery, kind of taking this patient's tumor and then my general version of anatomy and kind of superimposing one or the other, because it's not a very accurate way of looking at it. And that's always what we've been forced to do. I mean, you know, like the typical way we prepare for surgery is kind of scrolling through these DICOM images or two-dimensional images. And it's kind of like a flip book. I think that surgeons actually think they're really good at making 3D reconstructions from 2D models, but they're not. If you ask someone to paint something in VR, you know, in 3D based on what they saw in 2D, we're actually pretty bad at it. (laughs) So knowing, giving you that situational awareness of knowing where things are going to be in this specific patient is really valuable. I use it for every case for myself. What we also discovered though, and which has kind of further increased my utilization of it, is that Once I started telling patients, hey, I'm going to use VR to rehearse your surgery, and they said, well, that's my brain. Can I see? And so the patients wanted to start like seeing it themselves. Like They don't want to look at the black and white either. It doesn't look like anything to them. I I tell people, an MRI of the brain looks like a Rorschach blot, like one of those things. Is this a bat or is it two witches kissing? But when you look at it in VR, my little girl, my eight-year-old daughter knows where the tumor is. You know, can she can tell, oh yeah, that's the green thing, right? That's you, you want to take it out. So we started, I started using it to show patients before surgery their plan. And what we found was pretty remarkable. And this was kind of one of those aha moments because you know, using patients' own anatomy in a 360 fly-through prior to surgery led to significant improvements in their level of understanding of the surgery, significant improvements in their patient satisfaction, and importantly, significant improvements in the patient retention. So, you know, I was recommending surgery to patients, but they would go up to UCLA or Cedars, you know, because those are known academic centers within our reach. And after we started using VR, that attrition rate dropped down from 36% down to 4%. So really making a big difference how confident the patients felt uh, in our ability to perform the surgery. And I think that's that was actually a really good point because I did watch that video that you have on your website, right? And and discussing the patient experience. Now, I know from my own experience, I try to spend a fair amount of time explaining to the patient what their condition is and showing them their images, discussing the surgery. But I realize that many people still walk away not truly understanding. And, and that's understandable. They don't have the background knowledge in the yes. subject matter. But being able to yes. walk them through the surgery with VR may truly enhance their experience, right? It helps mitigate some of the fear, too. So beyond the retention rate, I'm sure you find that it strengthens the trust level your patients have because they're feeling like they're actively participating in their care, correct? That's absolutely right. And I, that's actually what I always tell people is that this narrows the knowledge gap between physicians and patients so that you're kind of giving them a crash course in neuroanatomy, which I can try to do uh, by using stick figures or DICOM drawing or p- images. But virtual reality is so intuitive. It's so obvious is what they're looking at. Not only does it give them that greater degree of confidence that, oh, wow, yeah, this is clear what the problem is. 
Number two, it helps them to better understand the risks that this tumor, you can see it's pushing on the optic nerve. And that's why one of the risks of this surgery, you know, could be losing your vision. And as you pointed out, importantly, Rosie, the this is sometimes the worst day of their life. I'm telling them they have a brain tumor and that they need surgery for it. And through combination of essentially technological distraction and the confidence of understanding that this gives them, it really does help to dissipate some of the fear of the unknown. Like, that, yeah, I get it. Okay. And we see this kind of odd reaction, like, all right, yeah, let's do it. Let's get in there and, and, and get this thing out. And so I, I always tell patients that, you know, I'm the CMO and the COO of their company, but they're the CEO. Like my job is to give them the medical information and execute the plan, but you know, their job is to make a decision. And so I have to, this is a really powerful tool to help the patients to understand that, uh, to prepare them and get ready for surgery. I think that's so fascinating. How do you make these images? I mean, everybody's used to CT scan and MRI and, you know, you do the best you can with the three-dimensional CT scans. And I find myself as, you know, a bone surgeon in general, and I'm like, okay, so now we're going to cut your foot like a loaf of bread this way. And now we're going to do it this way. And so I try to roll through the images, like the flip book, you say, is the technology significantly different to make the images that you're talking about? Yes. So the, the company that does it's called Surgical Theater. Again, it was based on flight simulator technology where they have to take the, a grid of a city and then reconstruct that, you know, pixel for pixel into 3D space so that the fighter jets can come and know where the enemy planes are going to be and know where the anti-aircraft missiles are going to be. So the co-founders who are from the Israeli Defense Force took that same technology from flight simulation and adopted it to brain surgery. So not only does it allow three-dimensional, very accurate reconstruction of the patient's images from the DICOMs, you can add in multiple layers. So you add CT plus MRI plus angiography, and you have all the relevant data in one place, not in three separate stacks of images. And so it's all overlaid on top of each other. We can actually use up to eight different layers, diffusion tensor imaging for brain pathways, optic nerves, functional imaging to identify the speech and motor areas of the brain, all of those can be generated into the three-dimensional model. So it really does simulate what it's going to be like at the time of surgery. And then we can simulate surgical tools as well. So for example, for aneurysm clips, one of the big things is deciding which angle and size of clip we're going to pick. And we know when you're clipping an aneurysm, the fewer attempts you get to get it right, then the better you are, because each attempt, you risk rupturing the aneurysm. So we can try out in VR four or five different clips and make sure I pick the right one before surgery. That's actually been published as well, is that using the VR, the system to rehearse for using aneurysm surgery, results in fewer clip attempts and less surgical time. Oh, wow. That's great. To that point, well, it's, it's sort of related to that point. There's that concept of that, you know, the Gartner hype cycle, right? Like where technologies have to yes. wake their way yes. from the innovation trigger point. I talk about this all the time. Yeah, across yep. the peak of inflated expectations. You go through a trough of disillusionment before you climb to what the slope of enlightenment yes. and the plateau of productivity. So like a lot of them go through multiple hype waves and VR has gone through a lot of waves of the trough of disillusionment, right? And do you see it now progressing yes. beyond that? It's going into the enlightenment and productivity stages. Absolutely. In many ways. So I, I use the Gardner Hype Cycle slides like when I give these talks at HIMSS and Becker's and you know the healthcare conferences. And I show it was 2017 where VR and AR were at the bottom of the trough of disillusionment. 2018, VR was starting to come out. And 2019, AR was also starting to come out. I mean, specifically for VR, 
for example, we've done more than 15,000 surgeries with this technology, rehearsal and planning. So not a small number across a, a broad array of specialties, mostly centered in neurosurgery, but also now expanding into cardiac surgery, thoracic surgery, liver and kidney, pancreas, you know, tumor surgeries, orthopedics we're starting to break into. So what it does require, though, as a surgeon is... Number two, willingness to adopt new technologies. And all of us sit on a spectrum of that. Some older school surgeons are kind of like, you know what? I don't need that. I just put my hand here and I know that the place to drill the hole is by my second knuckle. I'm like, well, that's only assuming that everyone has the same size skull. You know, <laughs> like, um, I mean, this is how people do it. And, you know, so number one is a willingness to adopt new technologies. And, and I think more and more people are understanding that just like with technology in every other area of our life, technologies can make surgery better, safer, faster. And then it also required that technologies catch up a bit and that they see the value in, in their practice. So if you're not the curve of you know, technology adoption that's you know, early adopter, innovators, early adopters, you know, early, late, there are some people that are never going to grab onto new technologies, that they've done something the same way for 20 years. But this technology, I see even senior chair-level neurosurgeons at, across the country at very well-known academic centers like Stanford, NYU, Case Western, are adopting this because they see, number one, it's a better way to do it themselves. And number two, training residents with this is even more powerful. And that's where I think some of the biggest value lies is that if I'm teaching residents and, and the resident says, yeah, put me in coach, you know, I'm ready to make the craniotomy. I'm going to say, okay, show me that you can do it in the right location in the VR. Show me, you know, in the surgical position where the correct anatomical structures are to look out for. And then, okay, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it. I think that's going to increasingly be the case that where the gateways to these technologies are lie during the training years and early development years where people are looking for, you know, things to enhance their training. And VR is so obvious as a way to improve general training for procedural training, but also patient-specific planning and rehearsal. That's a way better approach to prep and train for surgical cases, for sure. I remember when we were in training, before you were able to proceed with a certain procedure, your staff would say, staff or senior resident would be, okay, just outline the procedure to me. So you'd have to verbally just say the steps. But I mean, are you going to do any better <laughs> when you're actually applying your methodology? But It's so much... And back to our former podcast of the virtual reality train, it's just a way to standardize it and say, okay, like you have to show me this many reps of practice and show me that you're capable before I set you off and, and allow you to operate on a patient. I mean, you were talking about whether you're able to train or do the flight simulator. I'm sure there's all those types of checkboxes that you have to do before you're able to go fly a plane with 300 people in it. You know, surgery, you don't get to practice or in the major league type of analogy, you're like, well, if you don't do well, you don't make your reps in practice and find you strike out or, you know, <laughs> this is actually harmful to patients if you don't know what you're doing. And there's no way to assess that. You have your board certification, but there's no true way to assess that. There should be almost like a, a gaming virtual reality scoreboard. Like, okay, my surgeon's top 10 on this virtual gaming system. <laughs> I want to go to that person. We actually had designed a study to demonstrate that at one of the conferences. And people were not happy. The surgeons were not happy with it because it was essentially testing their ability to take a two-dimensional image and convert it into a 3D image. And, you know, nobody likes to learn that they're wrong. <laughs> Especially surgeons. Yes. <laughs> I get better at the game and then I'll that's come right. to you and you can take my tomorrow. Like, let's talk about this. This is a serious problem. I totally agree. And the analogy of the flight simulation, we don't let a pilot get into a fighter jet until they've got 10,000 hours of training. Which I appreciate. 
Yes, right. But I would also appreciate it if the person cutting into me, you know, had that same amount of training and preparation on a stimulator. Now, we know as surgeons that there's this thing called the educational imperative where in order to learn, the next generation of surgeons has to be able to learn on people, you know, and practice their skills under the supervision of a mentor. However, that's necessary, but the more of the upfront risk or the more of this, that the beginning part of the learning curve that we can offload from patients and onto a computer, the better off we are. If I can make those some of those mistakes that are fixable early and make sure that learning curve is steep, that we make fewer mistakes by the time we're, we're doing this on patients, then we're moving to an entirely different era of medical training. And also, I think people learn different ways too, right? And some people are really good at visual learning. I I know for myself, it's fine reading a textbook, but there's nothing like doing that simulated experience. So I think actually it would be so beneficial if that became a standard way of augmenting our surgical education, that's for sure. And then people might even feel comfortable bringing it into their practice. I think I was going to ask you, like in terms of the VR, like the hardware, the software, Do you find it easy to incorporate into your practice? Were there any challenges? Just in case if other medical professional surgeons want to incorporate this. You know, I guess it depends on how open the new technologies you are. I mean, of course, there's a learning curve to learn the system, but the models, the segmentation is done by a rep that that kind of runs the system. And so they make the models and then it just shows up on the planning station, which is installed in your office. The software itself, while you're in it, is very easy to use. You can either use a gaming controller or there's like the touch controllers, which are more intuitive to surgeons because you can kind of control with each hand. Of course, there's a learning curve to just getting used to, you know, which button does which, like this is the button to turn on the drill. This is the button to pick up the clip and apply the clip. That's a little bit of a learning curve, but the ability to repeatedly practice a procedure is unparalleled. Like if I want to do something 10 times versus I can't go through 10 cadavers, you know, like that's the only other way we have normally to practice procedures is in cadavers. I would say there's a little bit of a learning curve, but you know, well worth it because I'd rather have the learning curve be on learning the system rather than the learning curve be on doing the procedure on the patient. I was just wondering that if someone wanted to, if a physician wanted to, or like myself, wanted to bring uh, VR into my practice, is it really challenging to set it up? There is a learning curve to use it, but that's fine. But if you were to like actually bring oh. in the system and, and uh, are there any particular challenges to that? No, you know, as far as like logistics of setting up with the hospital system or in their practice, I mean, I guess it it depends on the type of practice you're in. But, you know, if you're in a like a a affiliated with a hospital, then, you know, the hospital is going to have to provide access to the packs for the surgical theater system. Same thing if you had a practice, like your images have to be pulled from somewhere. They can be loaded in via CD as well, but it's easier if it's linked directly to the pack so the images can be downloaded. The setup is something that's done by the company that does this, so that part's pretty easy. And, and the support, there's always support available to help running it and, and working it. So incorporating all this technology, so you, right now, you said 15,000 cases in neurosurgery this week? Not me, I mean... The technology for the neurosurgery, there's been that many cases then. Yes. I'm going to come back to that, but... Let's say it's branching out into cardiovascular or orthopedics. Is it the same type of hardware and then you just build in different programming? Let's say I'm in a big orthopedic group and I want to incorporate this into my trauma practice or clinical practice or fill in the blank. That system and that technology is there and then can you load in different programs? Like I want to use it for this. Definitely. 
That's so cool. Yeah. So in fact, the imaging capabilities of the system or the visualization capabilities of the system, I would say, are not specific to neurosurgery or cardiac. They are just based on the source images. So if I take a 3D CT of the heart versus a 3D CT of the pelvis, I'm going to be able to render those images in 3D no matter the specialty. The one caveat is that they have to be volumetric scans. So they have to be thin sliced. Like a protocol. Yeah, you just have to use thinner cut. Like for the brain, it's always one or one and a half millimeters. But for some of the things where it's a five millimeter section, you don't get the resolution necessary to get a, a really beautiful image with it. But that's just a matter of if this is something you're doing, you, you know, the, the radiology suite, the surgeon says, this, this is how I want my CTs done or this is how I want my MRIs done. But it, yeah, the, what they have done for each specialty, you know, for spine, for cardiac, you know, for neuro is number one, increase the ability to bring in other imaging modalities, you know, for example, such as 3D angio. And number two, there's a auto segmentation feature. So there's going to be different ways of looking at it that I'm going to want for the brain that will be less relevant for the hip or the knee. And so they have like a library of tiles where, you know what, this surgeon we know likes to see his knees rendered this way. So the bone may be a little more yellow and you'll see the vessels, you know, in a brighter red, like so that there'll be some customization that'll occur per surgeon and per specialty, but it isn't an entirely separate software. We have at Hogue at my hospital system, so there's two ways to use this technology. One is kind of a standalone single system, like called a, a surgical planner system. However, at Hogue, we've gone beyond that and, and have deployed it enterprise-wide. So we have in the hospital a virtual reality command center where all of the images for, for the system are built and then routed to the different clinics from there. So, you know, whether it's the neurosurgery clinic or the cardiac clinic or cancer or spine, they're built in one location and then routed throughout the hospital. What that allows is, is a few different things. Number one, the ability for surgeons to use it in wherever clinic they are. Number two, we also use the same technology, the same 360 models in the operating room for augmented reality. So we pair the surgical theater system with the navigation system, and then we get a real-time overlay of the patient's anatomy on top of the surgical field. And so the advantages of having the image creation centralized into a single core, the, the virtual reality command center, allows it, it to be from there sent out to both the clinics and the operating rooms. So there's an overlay Almost like if you're putting in a CT nav screws, there's an overlay of that patient's anatomy and you can see based on your hand motions where you are on the scan. Yes, so it's to scale and aligned with the patient's own anatomy. And it gives me a heads up display in the eyepiece of the microscope. So I'm operating through the microscope and I tap the pedal and the augmented reality overlay comes on and it can show me whatever I want. It can show me just the tumor. It can show me the optic nerves, the carotid artery. It can show me the floor of the skull base. And what we do at first is we take a known structure, for example, like along the cheekbone here, the root is ligoma, and I will align, make sure the augmented reality aligns with a known anatomical structure so that going forward, when I have unknown structures or areas where I can't see or it's bleeding, I turn on the AR and I know, okay, it's bleeding. It's safe to put my suction here because I know, I know there's not a nerve there, um, you know, even though I can't see. So that heads up display with augmented reality, I mean, it's amazing. It's like Superman vision. Like you can see through what you're operating on. This technology we developed at Hogue in conjunction with the company Surgical Theater over the last uh, two years and, or three years, and we just got FDA approval uh, last March. So we've been using it quite a bit, and then it's expanded to several other institutions as well. I feel like that's cheating. <laughs> that's okay. If you're the patient, you want the doctor to cheat. <laughs> I don't even know how you would go back to operating normal without 
know, if everything's labeled like you're in a netter's book and now all of a sudden I have to figure out things on my own, I don't even know how to deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a matter of increasing another level of safety for us. So there's many times where it's difficult to see what's going on or the tumor has distorted the anatomy or it's bleeding and you can't see. And so to have that additional layer of uh, the nerves there. So I want to put my suction over here to clear the field or, I'm, you know, I'm coming up on the carotid I, and it will tell me how far away I am from critical structures so that I know like how much further I can safely go. How often are you using the augmented reality versus like virtual reality? So yeah, again, for any brain tumor where I'm using the microscope or a, an endoscope, I'm using augmented reality. And there's two, like different systems for endoscopic augmented reality versus on the microscope. So those are two different things. And then currently we're working on developing, in fact, this coming weekend, uh, we're doing the final validation testing on an augmented reality system for placement of pedicle screws in the spine. And so, you know, it's wearing an AR headset, Magic Leap, and shows you exactly where the anatomy is. It gives you an ideal starting point, ending point for the screw. And you just, it's like plug and play. Like you said, it feels like cheating, but if it makes you more precise, then we'll, we'll it's okay to cheat. <laughs> well, you're, you're making it easier for robots to do your job. That's okay. <laughs> we had a segment on like robots in surgery, and there was some concern that perhaps we might be out of a job. <laughs> I'm not anytime worried that we're going to be out of a job. At least, at least in neuro, they don't have the tactile feedback to distinguish, you know, a, a nerve fiber from. <laughs> but the one thing that I said. I use robotics a little bit, but there's no robots that are able to dissect brain tumors or aneurysms. And even for spine surgery, I'd say that, you know, one of the concerns that a lot of surgeons have about robotics is that they're entirely trusting the navigation system. And so that your only fallback is to know the difference in feeling between cancellous bone and cortical bone. That's how you know you breach through the pedicle. So if you're if the robot is doing it and you're running into the metal cannula, because that's the robot's fixed in space. I don't know that I'm in cancellous bone or cortical bone. All I feel is the metal cannula. And so if the accuracy of the robot is off, which it can be, you know, it makes you feel uncomfortable. And so I like augmented reality as opposed to robotics because it gives you that additional layer of safety to show you where things are. But it also allows you the skills that are soft skills in surgery, the, the feel of this or, the, or the, how much you can pull on that. It doesn't take those away. And, and I, I think at least for neurosurgery, robotics aren't sophisticated enough yet to be able to perform those tasks and give the haptic feedback that's necessary. We'll get there. There's this company, it's uh, in Silicon Valley, Dexterity Labs, right? So I was watching a little demonstration, literally their robot hand was able to peel the skin off a grape. And I was like, oh, they're coming. <laughs> oh, it, was, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> what do you think the biggest obstacle is for this becoming more mainstream? Like we've done 15,000 cases in neurosurgery with this technology. I haven't heard of it. No offense to you. And I you know, it's amazing technology and I would love to figure out how this can be incorporated into something I do because I think it's a nice safety net for for a lot of things or adjunct or safety net, whatever you want. And this isn't something that is certainly not mainstream and not even in the medical world. What do you think is holding that technology back from becoming more mainstream? The pace of adoption of technology in medicine is always slow. When navigation was first introduced for brain surgery, previously the way they did it was just to kind of measure the size of their hand and draw some lines on the skull and they drill a big hole. And it took 15 years for it to become the standard of care because people were waiting for there to be solid evidence that it's a better way of doing it. 
in my mind, I don't need solid evidence to know that indoor plumbing is better than outdoor plumbing. Like there doesn't need to be an evidence-based study to show that. Navigation is obviously better than doing surgery without navigation. But it took a long time to prove that because you're taking a whole bunch of variables, the surgeon and the facility and the patient and the pathology, and trying to add those in. Now, eventually, it's demonstrated that navigation is better for brain surgery is, is not only the standard of care, but now if you didn't use it, it would be malpractice. You know, there are other technologies that are becoming that way, but surgeons are slow to adopt things, especially if the new things come up more than five or 10 years after their training. It's just something that, you know what, I got the way that I do it. This is always the way I've always done it. We do find, you know, a lot of innovators in the space of all, you know, levels of experience and points in their career. But I would say the number one hurdle is just inertia, essentially people not wanting to change the way they do things. To that point, that's part of the reason why we started the podcast, because I have a lot of friends in the tech sector, and it was interesting to hear discussions about advancements in tech related to medicine, yet medical people weren't really aware of what was happening without their input. So that was one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast, to have conversations about what technologies are emerging and and how they're impacting medicine and how, you know, we all communicate a little bit better and then maybe help make technologies more useful and relevant, right, to the people who are actually in the particular field in medicine. And I think doctors need to be way more engaged. You're right. We're slow to adopt, yeah, a new technologies and, and just for the fear of like, well, it's not accepted yet fully. And I don't know if it's the right thing to do. But and I'm not saying take unnecessary risks, but certainly you can sort of expand your horizon a little bit. Right. The one thing about this that I think the technology that makes it great is there isn't any risk. You're using it to rehearse and plan for the surgery, whereas otherwise you weren't doing that. You were just kind of thinking through what the steps of the surgery were beforehand. So there isn't any risk added in for the patient. Now there's cost, you know, like which is it's not paid for. And so that's the, again another reason why a lot of places are slow to t- adopt technologies because the cost of these technologies is expensive. And so the surgeons have to decide yes, I think this will be useful, be self-aware enough to know that there's a better way to do things, be willing to be vocal about it and, you know, champion it for the hospital and say, you know what, I've got some political capital. I'm willing to, you know, to go to the administration and say, you know, this technology is really a game changer. When I first saw this, I mean, you know, you guys in our offices every week, there's some rep trying to sell us some new iteration of something. You got to see this new screw for this or this new you know, device for that. And most of them are like little changes forward on past things or really this added a light to it. And now it, you, you wanted us to buy a whole new system. So th- the reason that this stood out to me is because it was so much different than the way we currently do it. I mean, we don't rehearse for surgery. We don't have a way to look in 3D at this patient's anatomy before I get in there. And I it drives me nuts when I hear surgeons say, you know, we're going to get in there and we'll see what we see and then and then we'll figure out what we need to do. And I'm like, that is not it at all. <laughs> like, that's not, I mean, you want to plan and rehearse and then execute a plan that was known to work. Well, that would make you take a lot more comfort in just as a surgeon, especially young surgeons who are coming out and be like, okay, we well, yeah, had all this anxiety with a bigger case or something you don't do routinely. And now it takes away some of that um, sleeplessness that a lot of us and all of us have had on many nights where you have that big case and you're like, holy, am I, am I prepared enough? And then you go through the scan and you worry and you're and taking away some of that anxiety 
I don't care what the cost is. I mean, that's just like overall health for, I mean, I would practice something a million times if you could take away some of that anxiety, knowing that you're going to be well prepared to do what you're, you're there for. That you're like, and what's interesting to me about orthopedics and so much of that augmented reality seems so, is fascinating. You know, orthopedics is probably not going to be very useful because our it's very mobile. You know, you're not having a stationary patient that's locked in with a Mayfield. You're using extra, you're moving parts. And unless you set up and register the patient on a stationary structure, you're not going to get that augmented reality. But so much of what we're trying to do is to restore normal anatomy or what what is this broken bone normally supposed to look like? And more to the point of seeing what the altered anatomy is of a patient is like, all right, well, what is a normal ankle CT overlay look like or a normal 3D image of a ankle or body part look like? And how can we restore that? And I don't know, it's just, it's interesting. I'm always trying to see how it would fit into my life. <laughs> yeah, so actually, Dr. Jamie Calouette from Hogue Orthopedic Institute is a colleague, and, and we've done a lot of early work on some of this stuff. And, you know, some of the applications in orthopedics is trying to, with augmented reality, show that ideal alignment. Like, this is a virtual K-wire. You know, you show, like, this is the ideal line you want to get it on. And it gives you, just like the fighter pilots have, a targeting system. So it's like, you know, here it is. Here's the circle. Get the dot in the center of the circle. And that's based on, you know, it's based on known, you know, ideal. How many times, Rosie, have you used the Bovi core to, like, okay, now this should line up to the hip, and this should, like, and you take the Bobby card, I'm like, well, that's about right. <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> yes. hundred yeah. percent. You know, you do that and that always worries me. It always gives me anxiety. And even like, you know, the descriptions about when, you know, your mentors would say, oh, it's like one or two finger breaths. I'm like, my fingers are not the same as your fingers. I want to know exactly like, yes. I want the exact measurements of what I need to do, right? So yeah, no, just having the precision with something like this would be amazing. And like you said, generally, we know the alignment, obviously, but if you can get maybe all those fracture fragments to kind of, if you can sort of put Humpty Dumpty back together again, <laughs> like, and you, or you have to do something with so many comminuted segments and that would just help us reduce OR time, right? And an increase the precision of how we're fixing things and lining up the screws just right, lining up the plate just right. There's so many different factors where we could improve our ability to do these surgeries significantly. I think that's a critical point. I want to go back to Chris Ahmad's book, uh, Skill, uh, where he talks about this and he challenges Malcolm Gladwell's, you know, 10,000 hours concept. Like, you know, you're you do something for 10,000 hours and you're expert at it. And the challenge is that he uses the example of driving. And he says, all of us have driven for 10,000 hours and arguably you get worse at it as time goes by, that you don't become expert, you become worse at it as time goes by because you're not driving with the intention to become a better driver. And so what VR, rehearsal in VR allows is practice with the intention to improve at it. And some surgeons will, including myself, will sometimes look back at a difficult case of the video and kind of look back and see what I could have done better. But imagine if you could do that on a regular basis with this. It's not just time equals skill. It's taking the time and looking at something critically with the intent of improving. So strain times time equals skill and constantly reaching to make yourself better and better at what you do. And this applies to surgery or music or sports. But we'd never had that ability before VR and surgery. And so now we have that ability to do it again and again until we get it right. Yeah, what can you do better on the computer first? <laughs> right. And just going back to 
the ability to incorporate this in practice, as you mentioned, that the cost obviously is a significant factor for it to be used in multiple clinics. But is there any movement, do you think, that insurance potentially cover this uh, for patients at all? If so you know, we don't I, have I don't any... Know. Unfortunately, like with many surgical technologies, including navigation systems and CT scanners, at least intraoperative CT scanners, there's no way to build, the insurers don't pay for it. The way that the hospital systems have recouping the costs is through the increased volume uh, that they get from better patient satisfaction, better conversion. So it's actually, you know, in our case, the first system we got, it paid for itself in less than a year, and then we got another one, and then it was working so well that we went enterprise-wide through all the different specialties. So it's a kind of investment in the growth of, of your practice or of your you know department. And for the surgeons, the same thing, that there's a code you can use for 3D volumetric rendering that you can get a little bit of your time. But the value for the surgeons, as far as from a the business of your practice, is that you'll be growing your practice through better patient uh, retention and conversion. Sign me up. I want one. <laughs> <laughs> we got to get, we gotta get you guys set up for a demo. I would love to. I live in Santa Cruz, so I'm not far. <laughs> I'm not that far. Okay. But, uh, I live in Indiana, ah, okay. but I'll travel. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, I was going to say, I definitely am a big fan. I mean, I've said this before. I've used the Oculus, right? But I was just playing games. But it was so much fun. It would be great to get more and more studies sort of done on this to just sort of continue to yeah. show its value and worth to the medical community. And hopefully, it can start getting adopted a little bit more universally. Do you see more studies happening or do you know of any uh, specifically right now that are trying to have like high yeah, so studies? I'm involved in several studies for both the virtual reality, rehearsal and planning. We've published a few. Uh, there are more coming. We're also in actively studying the augmented reality component. In fact, I'm just, just finishing up with the IRB submission for that to look at. I've done 150 cases of endoscopic pituitary surgery using the augmented reality system and to see if it has improved outcomes, particularly regarding pituitary function, visual function, and lower complication rates. So we're, we'll be looking at that data soon. And then we're also part of several different ongoing studies, including other institutions, Stanford, Case Western, Mount Sinai, that uh, have multi-center studies going on to demonstrate or evaluate the efficacy of these things. You know, it, it's difficult to move the needle for things like brain tumors because there, it's just a you know wide variety of surgeons and, and patients and anatomy of the tumor and extent of disease. I would imagine that it would be actually easier in something like orthopedics because you're doing a high volume of surgeries. You know, you could do several knees in a day, and they're more comparable to each other. Whereas, sure, I do ten brain tumors a month, but they could be they're all over in different locations of the brain, so it's hard. It's like comparing apples to oranges. So I think as the experience grows, we'll have more data that comes out of it. The initial data is a lot of subjective, you know, uh, stuff, time saved, sometimes you know, lower rate of complications and certain things. But the more experience we get using these systems, then of course we'll be able to give even more solid data for their benefits to patients. Fantastic. Erica, do you have anything else uh, that you wanted to ask? Because we're coming up on our time. No. You got to visit Newport Beach, put the VR headset on. Sure. <laughs> come into our ORs and check it out. It's, it's really amazing stuff. I would love to do something like Is that. Is there any place available kind of on the web right now that has a simulation of what what it is you do? I mean, is there a video or YouTube or a website? The best thing I would like, if you go to one place to see like a, a video, look up Reimagining Brain Surgery on YouTube. It's got 
over a million views of us talking about this and, and a patient story of what it was like for her to go through this experience of having a big bleed in her brain shows the technology. So that's if you wanted to kind of get an overview of what it does. And then, of course, you could dive deeper into it on Surgical Theater's website. They've got multiple different fly-through videos showing different anatomy of different parts of the body. As far as getting a taste of the VR experience, you'd have to go somewhere where they had it. It isn't something that's available on standard Oculus Quest or Go or any of those kind of things. It's a system, you know, that stand, the computer's, it's an FDA clear device, so it stands on its own um, for the actual VR uh, experience. Well, do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with the audience on VR or anything else from this conversation? You know, just that we we only just scratched the surface. We just talked about the surgical technologies today that for virtual reality. You know, we're using it quite a lot for pain management, for PTSD, for we've got an application, VR application, which we developed for pregnancy to help moms with labor and breastfeeding. Oh, wow. So there's uh, tons of applications that, that, that we've been working on. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. Let's do a part two. Actually, I did want to. I we didn't get to it, but like the I had seen so much on uh, using VR for chronic pain management. So that would be yes. a, a really yes. great topic to to do as well. Yeah, and that's one of the things where there is a ton of data already for, and we can go through that. And that would take definitely some more time because there's more than 500 published studies about the use of VR for pain management. And anywhere we can make a dent in the opioid epidemic, the fewer opioids we give out, we're really all in better shape. And, and VR is very powerful in that in that case. Thanks so much for having me, Rosie, Erica. Thank you so much for joining us. This was really fun for us. This show is being produced by StudioPod. And for more information, go to studiopodsf.com.